This is the Downey's EM Podcast. Okay, hello everybody and welcome back to the Downey's EM Podcast. Today we're doing a little supplement, if you will, to our conversation with Salim Razai some time ago about coding patients and coding in the community. This is a talk that was given at the Sugarloaf Conference in 2019 titled Coding in the Community, Keeping it Real with Really Limited Resources. All right, so what are we going to talk about today? We have sort of three objectives. I want to outline the key elements of cardiac arrest care. I think you need to know what's important so you know what's fluff or distraction, things that get in the way. I want to underscore the four resource-intensive portions of cardiac arrest care in my mind, which are CPR, access, airway, and ultrasound. And I want to kind of use the data to ask a clinically relevant question and highlight how we can do things better or at least more efficiently or at least more efficiently when resources are low, and particularly staffing. So cardiac arrest resuscitation, we all know that this is a pretty fickle mistress, right? We've seen cardiac arrest resuscitations that have gone horribly wrong, or at least not as well as they could have. And I think that happens when we don't build the resuscitation on a foundation of what we know works and what we know saves lives. And really, there are two pillars of cardiac arrest resuscitation. They are high-quality CPR and early and efficient defibrillation. If you build the resuscitation on that foundation, I think you're going to do right by your patients and you're going to run a good resus. But then all this other stuff comes in, comes into play, right? And you ask yourself, how can we get access and do chest compressions and analyze rhythms, give epi, do ultrasounds, review H's and T's when we have a doc, a nurse, a tech, and if we're lucky, a respiratory therapist. It's a very stressful circumstance to have all these additional things added on when your staffing is low in these low-resource settings, whether it be an understaffed overnight, a community setting, a standalone ER, a rural environment. Whenever your staffing's low, all of the jobs add up pretty quickly, and it can be pretty stressful. So let's look at each of these four areas that are pretty resource-intensive and ask ourselves some questions about how we could do it more efficiently. The first area is man or woman power. Our clinically relevant question here is, is mechanical CPR equal to or better than standard compressions? Really a man versus machine type question. Now we're going to look at some data here. And to keep this podcast short, we're going to do the 10,000 foot view of these studies. All the studies will be in the show notes for you to look at and review. It's a great compilation of really relevant articles for this topic, but we're going to hit them pretty quickly. So the first article to know about is uh, the Cochrane Review that was done by Brooks in February 2014. They looked at all the data on mechanical CPR versus standard compressions up till 2013. Now, this was six total studies. It was a very heterogeneous group. Um, one study was dating back to the 1970s, and it was a gas-powered CPR machine, which is unbelievable to imagine. But a very heterogeneous group of mechanical devices, it's worth noting that most of the patients, 767 of the roughly 1,100 patients, came from one study, which was the ASPIRE trial. Now know that that acronym has been used for other studies subsequently, but this was one of the low-distributing band-type devices, the autopulse and that study weighed heavily or weighted heavily in terms of the overall number of patients they had. It was also the only study to look at the primary targeted outcome of patient outcomes. They concluded in the end that there was insufficient evidence to support the use of mechanical CPR devices 
uh, in cardiac arrest at the time. Now, Gates in resuscitation in 2015 did a systematic review, and this was five trials. Three of these studies were new compared to the Cochrane review, so two were included from that, and it did include the Aspire trial. But note that these studies were more kind of like the devices we see now. They were the piston-style devices rather than the load-distributing band ones like the Autopulse. And they asked the question about, are these devices superior? And there was a lot of thought about that, right? A consistent, high-quality device, a machine doing CPR, may have better outcomes than a human who fatigues, who loses rhythm, who isn't compressing deeply or allowing recoil, etc. So they aimed to say or to look at whether or not these devices were superior. They did not prove that. They said studies, existing studies do not suggest that mechanical CPR devices are superior, but if you look at the data from these studies when they are compiled and, and analyzed side by side, you see that there really is equipose. They do seem to be quite equitable, especially the piston-style devices. So I argue if there is a signal in the data for likely equitable outcomes, and this is a huge sweat equity for your team, right, to have people rotating through doing CPR, taking one of your or your only tech, if it's a huge sweat equity saver and it looks like equitable outcomes, by all means, if you can get one of these devices like the Lucas or one of the piston-style devices in your department, go for it. The next question is about access. Now, access is definitely a resource-intensive thing in cardiac arrest. Getting an IV can be quite difficult. And our clinically relevant question here is, is IO access equal to or better than IV? In looking at this data, the first study to recognize is the Reed study in Annals of EM in 2011. Now, they had a paramedics. They were trained in doing three-axis location prior to starting the study, tibial IO, humeral IO, and peripheral IV. They were trained in a cadaver lab in all of these areas, and their six-month enrollment time frame, they got 182 out-of-hospital cardiac arrest cases, and they looked at some relevant questions or data, at least for us. The first thing that comes up was first attempt success rate. Very interestingly, we see the tibial IO outperforms the others pretty handedly here. Tibial IO had 95% initial attempt success, humeral IO had 71 and peripheral IV had an abysmal 49. Less than half of the patients were successfully IV cannulated on the first attempt. They also looked at things like displacement, and this is worth mentioning because the humeral IO suffered a large displacement problem here, which took its numbers down a little bit. And finally, one thing to note is about the timed first drug administration. Here we see the tibial IO winning out over the other two with an average time of 6.5 minutes for the tibial IO and about 7.7 or 7.6 for the humeral IO and peripheral IV, respectively. So in conclusion, we see that getting access is very high first attempt success rate with the tibial IO, and it's about a minute faster in terms of getting medications in. Now, if you're astute and you've been paying attention, you may be saying to yourself, Jason, that's great, but what about our patient-centered outcomes, right? First attempt success rate, time to first medicine administration, those are good things to know about, but they don't affect our patients. Unfortunately, when we're looking at patient-centered outcomes in IO versus IV for out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, it's really an apples and oranges comparison. Now, what do I mean by that? Let me show you two studies, and you'll understand what I mean at the end. The first one is the Feinstein study in June 2017. This was a retrospective cohort uh, in Washington State, 
their EMS group had about 1,200 patients, 200 of which got IOs. So it's about a 17 or so percent IO utilization rate. Their protocol, very, very importantly, was to try for an IV, and if they couldn't get an IV, do an IO. What's the problem with that? That creates two groups that are just not the same. The IO group and the IV group were different. There was differences in terms of the amount of unwitnessed arrests, the non-shockable rhythms were higher for IO groups, and in the end, of course, you're going to see differences in ROSC, difference in emissions, difference in DC from the hospital. There were worse outcomes because the IO group was simply sicker than the IV. Then there was the Quano study in May 2018. They had a huge group as well. They did not have that protocol of doing an IV, and if not able to get an IV, do an IO. They were allowed to choose themselves which they thought to do first, but they found that 95% of patients got IVs, and only 5% therefore got IOs. Why was the IO group so much smaller? It probably had to do with a familiarity issue, and in the end we see things as well in terms of comparing the groups the IO group had more non-shockable rhythms, less bystander CPR. They were less aggressively treated in the hospital. Essentially, that study suffered the same problems. So in the end, we see there's really no good patient-centered study as yet comparing IO to IV. So to summarize the access studies, we saw Reed's taught us that the IO was faster and easier. And the Feinstein and Quano studies pointed toward the IO being worse, but I would say that those are confounded or poor data, and we can't really trust that. Let me ask you a provocative question, though. What do we give IV or IO that saves lives and or brains? Enter the Paramedic 2 study, which we've actually looked at on a separate podcast. UK-based study, 8,000 patients. They were able to get permission to do an epi versus placebo for out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. Congratulations to the UK. Fantastic. Certainly, the patients that got epi had a higher ROSC rate, but there was no difference in neurointact survival between the two groups. So in summary, if the IO is faster, it has a higher first attempt success rate, and there's signal in the literature that what we give IO or IV may not matter, go IO first, get your ducks in a row, and then if you need an IV, transition to that. Let me just take a pause real quick and make sure everyone recognizes that for the vast majority of cardiac arrest cases, there's a signal in the literature that what we give IO or IV does not matter. There are certainly some, like a hyperkalemic arrest or a TCA or sodium channel blocker overdose, where what we give absolutely matters, and you get the best point of access you can, whether it's IV or IO. But for the vast majority, we see a signal that maybe what we give in the vein or in the, in the bone, does not matter. So why waste our time and resources in doing that? Get your quick point of access if there's only three of you in the room to resuscitate this patient. All right, airways next. Airway is a very resource-intensive part of cardiac arrest care. Our clinically relevant question here, is intubating a cardiac arrest patient in their best interest or even really necessary? There are three studies to look at here. And we've looked at these in a greater depth in a separate podcast as well. The first one to mention, though, is the Jaber study, February 2018. They had about 2,000 patients, 2,040 to be exact. They randomized them into getting either BVM or endotracheal intubation. 
the functional survival was 4.3% for BVM and 4.2% for endotracheal intubation. No difference, but it is worth mentioning that it was harder to maintain a mass seal for the BVM group. They had higher rates of regurgitation, so there was some technically difficult elements to BVMing a patient continually. The other study worth mentioning is the Airways 2, came out in August 2018. 9,000 patients, the paramedics rather than the patients, they were randomized to either use an LMA, which was the eye gel, or to intubate the patient. Functional survival was 6.4% for LMA and 6.8% for ETI, not statistically significantly different. It is worth noting that the eye gel group was was statistically significantly more likely to achieve ventilation in two attempts or less. And if the paramedic was assigned to intubating, they were less likely to use advanced airway techniques and patients crossed over from the endotracheal group to the IGEL group at a much higher rate. And then there's the PART trial. came out the same month, same year, August 2018. 3,000 patients. Again, the paramedics were randomized. This time they were randomized to either using the King laryngeal tube or endotracheal intubation. Functional survival here was seen to be 7% for the LT group, the laryngeal tube, and 5% for the endotracheal intubation. So in summary, the Jaber says that BVM and ETI may be same neuro outcomes, certainly some difficulties with maintaining BVM seal and aspiration risks. Airways 2 and PART showed that there's at least the same neuro outcomes with these supraglottic devices. In a low resource setting, throw in your supraglottic and move on. Finally, ultrasound. Two clinically relevant questions here. Does ultrasound improve outcomes in cardiac arrest patients and can it prognosticate them? The first study to look at is the REASONS trial, which really looks at that second question about prognostication. So they skipped VFib and VTAC, right? Because they wanted to know, does the ultrasound help in cardiac arrest cases? Really, VFib and VTAC, ultrasound is not going to be that useful. They need good CPR and defibrillation. It's really PEA and asystole that we're thinking about here, right? And so they had 793 patients with PEA or asystole, and they found that one-third of them had cardiac activity. In terms of its ability to prognosticate, the answer is absolutely yes. When there was ultrasound findings of cardiac activity, much higher rates of ROSC, 51% versus 14% without cardiac activity on ultrasound, and that effect went all the way down to discharge, 3.8%. Uh, discharge from the hospital for ultrasound positive cardiac activity versus abysmal 0.6 if the ultrasound did not show that. Again, these numbers are for PEA and asystole, so they are definitely going to be lower discharge rates than our VFib VTAC arrests. In terms of improving outcomes or affecting outcomes, of their nearly 800 patients, they found 34 pericardial effusions on which they intervened and 15 cases of thrombolytics for dilated RV, thought to be PE. Very, very importantly, their average pause for ultrasound was 4.5 seconds. So they were quick and efficient at this. Which leads us to another question. Talking about the double-edged sword nature of ultrasound in cardiac arrest, does ultrasound improve outcomes in cardiac arrest patients? The other question to ask there is, does it worsen them? So Clattenburg, January 2018, this was a study that got a lot of press. They had 24 cases of cardiac arrest that they used video to record the resuscitation. There's 110 pauses that they were able to analyze, and they found that when ultrasound was used, 
there was a 19-second pause. When it wasn't used, there was a 14-second pause. Both of these are bad, right? They're both greater than 10 seconds. But there's a 5-second longer pause when ultrasound was used. This is unacceptable. We are taking away one element of our foundation, one of our pillars of resuscitation, high-quality CPR. This includes short pauses for rhythm checks. So it leads to the question, can we do better? Enter structured approaches like the CASA exam, CASA, Cardiac Arrest Sonographic Assessment. And really what it is, is it's just a structured approach. We'll put an image of the CASA exam in the show notes, but for the first pause, which is going to be less than 10 seconds with a countdown from an outside provider not doing the ultrasound, you're answering a simple question. Is there tamponade? Question two on the next pause, less than 10 seconds. Is there right heart strain? And question three, is there cardiac activity? They recommend, by the way, using the sub-xiphoid approach for ease in these cases. And when the CASA exam is implemented, we see improvements. We see less of the really long duration pauses, the greater than 20 seconds, the 16 to 20 seconds. The number of those pauses go down. The number of 10 second or less and the 11 to 15 second pauses go up. So an improvement in our speed and efficiency. So to wrap up ultrasound, can it improve outcomes? Yes, on a very few numbers, right? 800 patients, they found 35 patients with a pericardial effusion and 15 patients with right heart strain from probable PE. The other side of that coin, the other edge of that sword is that ultrasound can be a time suck and we need to be structured. So in conclusion, resuscitating cardiac arrest patients is resource intensive. There are four areas where we can be efficient when resources and staffing are low. First is man or woman power. The question of man versus machine comes up. I think the Gates systematic review shows us that man and machine are relatively equitable. And if you can get a piston style device in your department, by all means. Next is access, IO versus IV. Reads taught us that it was faster. We know there's no great patient-centered outcome data here, but there's a signal in the literature that what we're giving IV or IO may not matter. So to lose a nurse for many minutes trying to get a peripheral IV, which has a less than 50% initial attempt success rate, is not acceptable. Put the IO in and move on. Next was airway. We saw from three studies that at least equitable between the supraglottic devices and the endotracheal intubation, throw in your supraglottic and move on again. And finally, ultrasound. The reasons trial showed us that in PEA and asystole, there is a benefit in terms of prognostication, and in a very few patients, it can help improve outcomes. Clattenburg reminds us that POCUS can lead to longer delays in cardiac resuscitations, and we need to be structured with processes like the CASA exam. And so that's it. Remember, start with your foundation. Build your resuscitation on high-quality CPR and early and efficient defibrillation. The four areas where we can lose time, resources, and staffing are in man and woman power, access, airway, and ultrasound. Be as efficient and focused as you can. Thanks for listening.